Section 19 of Orpheus in Mayfair and Other Stories and Sketches. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Rubinstein, Culver City. Orpheus in Mayfair and Other Stories and Sketches by Maurice Baring. Venus. John Fletcher was an overworked minor official in a government office. He lived a lonely life, and had done so ever since he had been a boy. At school he had mixed little with his fellow schoolboys, and he took no interest in the things that interested them, that is to say, games. On the other hand, although he was what is called good at work, and did his lessons with facility and ease, he was not a literary boy, and did not care for books. He was drawn towards machinery of all kinds, and spent his spare time in dabbling in scientific experiments or in watching trains go by on the Great Western Line. Once he blew off his eyebrows while making some experiment with explosive chemicals. His hands were always smudged with dark, mysterious stains, and his room was like that of a medieval alchemist, littered with retorts, bottles, and test glasses. Before leaving school he invented a flying machine, heavier than air, and an unsuccessful attempt to start it on the high road caused him to be the victim of much chaff and ridicule. When he left school he went to Oxford. His life there was as lonely as it had been at school. The dirty, untidy, ink-stained and chemical-stained little boy grew up into a tall, lank, slovenly-dressed man, who kept entirely to himself, not because he cherished any dislike or disdain for his fellow-creatures, but because he seemed to be entirely absorbed in his own thoughts and isolated from the world by a barrier of dreams. He did well at Oxford, and when he went down he passed high into the civil service and became a clerk in a government office. There he kept as much to himself as ever. He did his work rapidly and well, for this man, who seemed so slovenly in his person, had an accurate mind and was what was called a good clerk, although his incurable absent-mindedness once or twice caused him to forget certain matters of importance. His fellow clerks treated him as a crank and as a joke but none of them, try as they would, could get to know him or win his confidence. They used to wonder what Fletcher did with his spare time, what were his pursuits, what were his hobbies, if he had any. They suspected that Fletcher had a hobby of some engrossing kind, since in everyday life he conveyed the impression of a man who is walking in his sleep, who acts mechanically and automatically. Somewhere else, they thought, in some other circumstances, he must surely wake up and take a living interest in somebody or in something. Yet had they followed him home to his small room in Canterbury Mansions, they would have been astonished. For when he returned home from the office after a hard day's work, he would do nothing more engrossing than slowly to turn over the leaves of a book in which there were elaborate drawings and diagrams of locomotives and other kinds of engines. And on Sunday he would take a train 
to one of the larger junctions and spend the whole day in watching express trains go past, and in the evening would return again to London. One day, after he had returned from the office somewhat earlier than usual, he was telephoned for. He had no telephone in his own room, but he could use a public telephone which was attached to the building. He went into the small box, but found on reaching the telephone that he had been cut off by the exchange. He imagined that he had been rung up by the office, so he asked to be given their number. As he did so, his eye caught an advertisement which was hung just over the telephone. It was an elaborate design in black and white pointing out the merits of a particular kind of soap called the Venus. A classical lady holding a looking-glass in one hand and a cake of this invaluable soap in the other was standing in a sphere surrounded by pointed rays which was no doubt intended to represent the most brilliant of the planets. Fletcher sat down on the stool and took the receiver in his hand. As he did so, he had for one second the impression that the floor beneath him gave way and that he was falling down a precipice. But before he had time to realize what was happening, the sensation of falling left him. He shook himself as though he had been asleep, and for one moment a faint recollection as though of the dreams of the night twinkled in his mind and vanished beyond all possibility of recall. He said to himself that he had had a long and curious dream, and he knew it was too late to remember what it had been about. Then he opened his eyes wide and looked around him. He was standing on the slope of a hill. At his feet there was a kind of green moss, very soft to tread on. It was sprinkled here and there with light red wax-like flowers such as he had never seen before. He was standing in an open space. Beneath him there was a plain covered with what seemed to be gigantic mushrooms, much taller than a man. Above him rose a mass of vegetation, and over all this was a dense, heavy, streaming cloud faintly glimmering with a white, silvery light which seemed to be beyond it. He walked towards the vegetation, and soon found himself in the middle of a wood, or rather, of a jungle. Tangled plants grew on every side. Large hanging creepers with great blue flowers hung downwards. There was a profound stillness in this wood. There were no birds singing, and he had heard not the slightest rustle in the rich undergrowth. It was oppressively hot, and the air was full of a pungent, aromatic sweetness. He felt as though he were in a hothouse full of gardenias and stephanatus. At the same time, the atmosphere of the place was pleasant to him. It was neither strange nor disagreeable. He felt at home in this green, shimmering jungle and in this hot, aromatic twilight, as though he had lived there all of his life. He walked mechanically onwards as if he were going to a definite spot of which he knew. He walked fast, but in spite of the oppressive atmosphere and the thickness of the growth, he grew neither hot 
nor out of breath. On the contrary, he took pleasure in the motion, and the stifling sweet air seemed to invigorate him. He walked steadily on for over three hours, choosing his way nicely, avoiding certain places, and seeking others, following a definite path and making for a definite goal. During all this time the stillness continued unbroken, nor did he meet a single living thing, either bird or beast. After he had been walking for what seemed to him several hours, the vegetation grew thinner, the jungle less dense, and from a more or less open space in it he seemed to discern what might have been a mountain entirely submerged in a multitude of heavy gray clouds. He sat down on the green stuff, which was like grass, and yet was not grass, at the edge of an open space whence he got this view, and quite naturally he picked from the boughs of an overhanging tree a large red juicy fruit and ate it. Then he said to himself, he knew not why, that he must not waste time, but must be moving on. He took a path to the right of him and descended the sloping jungle with big, buoyant strides, almost running. He knew the way as though he had been down that path a thousand times. He knew that in a few moments he would reach a whole hanging garden of red flowers, and he knew that when he had reached this he must again turn to the right. It was as he thought. The red flowers soon came to view, he turned sharply, and then through the thinning greenery he caught sight of an open plain where more mushrooms grew. But the plain was yet a great way off, and the mushrooms seemed quite small. I shall get there in time, he said to himself, and walked steadily on, looking neither to the right nor to the left. It was evening by the time he reached the edge of the plain. Everything was growing dark. The endless vapors and the high banks of cloud in which the whole of his world was sunk grew dimmer and dimmer. In front of him was an empty level space, and about two miles further on the huge mushrooms stood out, tall and wide like monuments of some prehistoric age. And underneath them on the soft carpet there seemed to move a myriad vague and shadowy forms. I shall get there in time, he thought. He walked on for another half hour, and by this time the tall mushrooms were quite close to him, and he could see moving underneath them distinctly now, green living creatures like huge caterpillars with glowing eyes. They moved slowly and did not seem to interfere with each other in any way. Further off and beyond them there was a broad and endless plain of high green stalks, like ears of green wheat or millet, only taller and thinner. He ran on, and now at his very feet, right in front of him, the green caterpillars were moving. They were as big as leopards. As he drew nearer they seemed to make way for him and to gather themselves into groups under the thick stems of the mushrooms. He walked along the pathway they made for him under the shadow of the broad sunshade-like roofs of these gigantic growths. It was almost dark now, 
yet he had no doubt or difficulty as to finding his way. He was making for the green plain beyond. The ground was dense with caterpillars. They were as plentiful as ants in an ant's nest, and yet they never seemed to interfere with each other or with him. They instinctively made way for him, nor did they appear to notice him in any way. He felt neither surprise nor wonder at their presence. It grew quite dark. The only lights which were in this world came from the twinkling eyes of the moving figures which shone like little stars. The night was no whit cooler than the day. The atmosphere was as steamy, as dense and aromatic as before. He walked on and on, feeling no trace of fatigue or hunger, and every now and then he said to himself, I shall be there in time. The plain was flat and level, and covered the whole way with mushrooms whose roofs met and shut out from him the sight of the dark sky. At last he came to the end of the plain of mushrooms and reached the high green stalks he had been making for. Beyond the dark clouds a silver glimmer had begun once more to show itself. I am just in time, he said to himself. The night is over. The sun is rising. At that moment there was a great whirr in the air, and from out of the green stalks rose a flight of millions and millions of enormous broad-winged butterflies of every hue and description, silver, gold, purple, brown, and blue, some with dark and velvety wings like the purple emperor or the red admiral, others diaphanous and incandescent as dragonflies, others again like vast, soft, and silvery moths, they rose from every part of that green plain of stalks, they filled the sky, and then soared upwards and disappeared into the silvery cloudland. Fletcher was about to leap forward when he heard a voice in his ear saying, Are you 6493 Victoria? You are talking to the home office. As soon as Fletcher heard the voice of the office messenger through the telephone, he instantly realized his surroundings and the strange experience he had just gone through, which had seemed so long and which in reality had been so brief, left little more impression on him than that which remains with a man who has been immersed in a brown study, or has been staring at something, say a poster in the street, and has not noticed the passage of time. The next day he returned to his work at the office, and his fellow clerks during the whole of the next week noticed that he was more zealous and more painstaking than ever. On the other hand, his periodical fits of abstraction grew more frequent and more pronounced. On one occasion he took a paper to the head of the department for signature, and after it had been signed, Instead of removing it from the table, he remained staring in front of him, and it was not until the head of the department had called him three times loudly by name that he took any notice and regained possession of his faculties. As these fits of absent-mindedness grew to be somewhat severely commented on, he consulted a doctor, 
who told him that what he needed was a change of air, and advised him to spend his Sundays at Brighton or at some other bracing and exhilarating spot. Fletcher did not take the doctor's advice, but continued spending his spare time as he did before, that is to say, in going to some big junction and watching the express trains go by all day long. One day, while he was thus employed, it was Sunday in August, when the Egyptian exhibition was attracting great crowds of visitors, and sitting, as was his habit, on a bench in the center platform of Slough Station, he noticed an Indian pacing up and down the platform, who every now and then stopped and regarded him with a peculiar interest, hesitating as though he wished to speak to him. Presently, the Indian came and sat down on the same bench, and after having sat there in silence for some minutes, he at last made a remark about the heat. Yes, said Fletcher, it is trying, especially for people like myself, who have to remain in London during these months. You are in an office, no doubt, said the Indian. Yes, said Fletcher, and you are no doubt hard-worked. Our hours are not long, Fletcher replied, and I should not complain of overwork if I did not happen to suffer from... Well, I don't know what it is, but I suppose they would call it nerves. Yes, said the Indian, I could see that by your eyes. I am a prey to sudden fits of abstraction, said Fletcher. They are growing upon me. Sometimes in the office I forget where I am altogether for a space of about two or three minutes. People are beginning to notice it and to talk about it. I have been to a doctor, and he said I needed a change of air. I shall have my leave in about a month's time, and then perhaps I shall get some change of air, but I doubt if it will do me any good. But these fits are annoying, and once something quite uncanny seemed to happen to me. The Indian showed great interest, and asked for further details concerning this strange experience, and Fletcher told him all that he could recall, for the memory of it was already dimmed, of what had happened and when he had telephoned that night. The Indian was thoughtful for a while after hearing this tale. At last he said, I am not a doctor. I am not even what you call a quack doctor. I am a mere conjurer, and I gain my living by conjuring tricks and fortune-telling at the exhibition which is going on in London. But although I am a poor man and an ignorant man, I have an inkling, a few sparks in me of ancient knowledge, and I know what is the matter with you. What is it? asked Fletcher. You have the power or something has the power, said the Indian, of detaching yourself from your actual body. And your astral body has been into another planet. By your description, I think it must be the planet Venus. It may happen to you again and for a longer period, for a very much longer period. Is there anything I can do to prevent it? asked Fletcher. Nothing, said the Indian. You can try change of air if you like, but, he said with a smile, I do not think it will do you much good. 
At that moment a train came in, and the Indians said goodbye and jumped into it. On the next day, which was Monday, when Fletcher got to the office it was necessary for him to use the telephone with regard to some business. No sooner had he taken the receiver off the telephone than he vividly recalled the minute details of the evening he had telephoned, when the strange experience had come to him. The advertisement of Venus soap that had hung in the telephone box in his house appeared distinctly before him, and as he thought of that, he once more experienced a falling sensation which lasted only a fraction of a second, and rubbing his eyes he awoke to find himself in the tepid atmosphere of a green and humid world. This time he was not near the wood, but on a seashore. In front of him was a gray sea, smooth as oil, and clouded with steaming vapors, and behind him the wide green plain stretched into a cloudy distance. He could discern, faint on the far-off horizon, the shadowy forms of the gigantic mushrooms which he knew, and on the level plain which reached the sea beach, but not so far off as the mushrooms, he could plainly see the huge green caterpillars moving slowly and lazily in an endless herd. The sea was breaking on the sand with a faint moan, but almost at once he became aware of another sound, which came he knew not whence, and which was familiar to him. It was a low, whistling noise, and it seemed to come from the sky. At that moment Fletcher was seized by an unaccountable panic. He was afraid of something. He did not know what it was, but he knew he felt absolutely certain that some danger, no vague calamity, no distant misfortune, but some definite physical danger was hanging over him and quite close to him, something from which it would be necessary to run away and to run fast in order to save his life. And yet there was no sign of danger visible, for in front of him was the motionless oily sea, and behind him was the empty and silent plain. It was then he noticed that the caterpillars were fast disappearing as if into the earth. He was too far off to make out how. He began to run along the coast. He ran as fast as he could, but he dared not look round. He ran back from the coast to the plain from which a white mist was rising. By this time every single caterpillar had disappeared. The whistling noise continued and grew louder. At last he reached the wood and bounded on, trampling down long trailing grasses and tangled weeds through the thick, muggy gloom of those endless aisles of jungle. He came to a somewhat open space where there was the trunk of a tree larger than the others. It stood by itself and disappeared into the tangle of creepers above. He thought he would climb the tree, but the trunk was too wide, and his efforts failed. He stood by the tree, trembling and panting with fear. He could not hear a sound, but he felt that the danger, whatever it was, was at hand. It grew darker and darker. It was night in the forest. He stood paralyzed with terror. He felt as though bound hand and foot, 
but there was nothing to be done except to wait until his invisible enemy should choose to inflict his will on him and achieve his doom. And yet the agony of his suspense was so terrible that he felt that if it lasted much longer something must inevitably break inside him. And just as he was thinking that eternity could not be so long as the moments he was passing through, a blessed unconsciousness came over him. He woke from this state to find himself face to face with one of the office messengers, who said to him that he had been given his number two or three times, but had taken no notice of it. Fletcher executed his commission, and then went upstairs to his office. His fellow clerks at once asked what had happened to him, for he was looking white. He said that he had a headache and was not feeling quite himself, but made no further explanations. This last experience changed the whole tenor of his life. When fits of abstraction had occurred to him before, he had not troubled about them, and after his first strange experience he had felt only vaguely interested. But now it was a different matter. He was consumed with dread, lest the thing should occur again. He did not want to get back to that green world in that oily sea. He did not want to hear the whistling noise and to be pursued by an invisible enemy. So much did the dread of this weigh on him that he refused to go to the telephone lest the act of telephoning should set a light in his mind, the train of associations, and bring his thoughts back to his dreadful experience. Shortly after this he went for leave, and following the doctor's advice he spent it by the sea. During all this time he was perfectly well, and not once troubled by his curious fits. He returned to London in the autumn, refreshed and well. On the first day that he went into the office a friend of his telephoned. When he was told that the line was being held for him, he hesitated, but at last he went down to the telephone office. He remained away twenty minutes. Finally his prolonged absence was noticed, and he was sent for. He was found in the telephone room, stiff and unconscious, having fallen forward on the telephone desk. His face was quite white, and his eyes wide open, and glazed with an expression of piteous and harrowing terror. When they tried to revive him, their efforts were in vain. A doctor was sent for, and he said that Fletcher had died of heart disease. End of section 19. Recording by Alan Rubenstein, Culver City.